Good morning, WMNFers, and welcome back to Midpoint. We are your mid-Florida, mid-week, mid-morning source for news and public affairs with a local perspective. And I'm Shelley Reback. Today's news is it is hot. The heat of a Florida summer is relentless. It's broiling. It's oppressive. Just walking from the house to the car will leave you sweating. Working outside is a potential health hazard. You can cook bacon on your car hood, and in a deep and meaningful way, you now understand what a fried egg goes through. And this year's numbers are breaking records again. Florida and the rest of the world saw the hottest July since people have been keeping track and its second hottest month ever, with multiple cities breaking their own records, including right here in Tampa and Sarasota, among others. All of Florida has been under an excessive heat warning or heat watches from the National Weather Service with warnings of heat indices of 115 degrees or more, and more hot days are ahead. When is it ever going to cool off? And are these the hottest days on record, also the coolest days we'll ever have going forward? Are these extreme heat events we've had this summer a foreshadowing of what is coming in future summers? Have we seen the end of days of balmy summer breezes at night and cooling off at the beach in Florida summers? My guest, meteorologist Andy Johnson, is here to help us answer those questions. And if we are destined to suffer through more and more extreme heat events, if these debilitating heat waves continue, how should we prepare to handle them? What should our political leaders, our business leaders, and our public health officials be planning to keep our communities and workers safe in this heat? And what is our own responsibility for taking care of each other in a heat wave as dangerous as that we've seen this summer? Dr. Tom Bernard, an expert in heat stress, is here to help us figure all that out. And we'll be taking your calls and comments during the show, too. So join us at 813-239-9663. You can email dj at wmnf.org, or you can text us at 813-433-0885. But please don't wait until the end of the show, or we might not get to you. But first, a few news items that I think you'll find interesting. So, who had leprosy on their 2023 bingo card this year? If the leprosy and malaria cases in West Central Florida don't get to you, the flesh-eating bacteria might. Have we talked about the flesh-eating bacteria yet? Five people in Florida have died due to flesh-eating bacteria. The five deaths reported so far this year all came from right here in Sarasota, Hillsborough, Pasco, and Polk counties, according to the Florida Department of Health. So far this year, 26 cases have been reported in Florida. That's actually down from 74 cases reported last year, and 17 people died in Florida in 2022. So we are actually doing better so far this year with regard to flesh-eating bacteria than last year. The easiest way to avoid contracting the infection is to wash your hands regularly. Also, try to avoid going in warm salt water or brackish water, hot tubs and swimming pools, and eating raw seafood like crab, oysters, or sushi, especially with, your op- with any open sores. But who wants to go in the hot tub waters of the Gulf this summer anyway? Now, a couple of voting matters. You know, we always love to talk about voting. Well, around 3 million voters in Florida voted by mail in the last election. 
that's unlikely to happen again because people may not realize that a new Florida elections law now requires you to re-register to vote by mail every two years rather than every four years. All standing requests to vote by mail were purged in December of last year under Florida Senate Bill 90. That means if you want to vote by mail in the next election, you need to go to your county supervisor of elections office and renew your request. Your request must be made at least 10 days before an election. Do it for yourself. Help your friends and family do it too. Request a mail ballot even if you plan to vote in person because you never know what may prevent you from showing up to vote and you'll be glad you can vote by mail if you choose. So go online and re-register your vote by mail ballot. And in our third news story, this week a high stakes legal battle with potentially national implications will take place in Tallahassee before a Rick Scott appointed judge who could approve a new voting redistricting map in time for the 2024 elections. That judge's ruling will likely be appealed to the Florida Supreme Court where DeSantis has also appointed the majority of justices. After that, it is sure to go to the United States Supreme Court. Governor DeSantis and his Attorney General, Ashley Moody, from right here in Plant City, they argue that it's inherently wrong to preserve the political voice of black voters in a redistricting scheme that ensures minority representation, even though this is actually required by the Florida Constitution and the Federal Voting Rights Act. This Florida case could open the door to dismantling minority voting protections nationwide when it inevitably hits the United States Supreme Court. We'll be bringing more attention to this case on Midpoint in the near future. But right now, we need to talk about the weather and what to do about it. So Andy Johnson is with us. Now, many of you may remember Andy as an on-air meteorologist for WTVT Channel 13 for 34 years, from 1979 to 2013. He is currently the president of Johnson Forensic Meteorological Consulting, and he provides site-specific weather information to legal, insurance, and engineering clients. And he's continuing his lifelong passion for predicting the weather that he has had since he was a kid. Uh, we're really happy to have him here. Welcome to WMNF, Andy Johnson. Thank you so much, Shelley. It's so nice to be here. And we're also happy to host Dr. Tom Bernard today. Dr. Bernard is a PhD in occupational health from the USF College of Public Health. Tom Bernard is an expert in occupational safety and health, and he's served with many, too many to name, professional organizations, boards and panels, promoting professional practice guidelines, especially in the area of heat stress. He's also promoted heat stress management and ergonomics for over 30 years through workforce development activities around keeping people safe from heat stress at work. So I'm happy to have you here with us, Dr. Tom Bernard. Shelley, it's great to be here. Thank you. Let me start with you, Andy. The summer of 2023 will be the warmest ever recorded on planet Earth. So my question is whether it will also be the coolest summer that we're ever going to experience going forward. Andy, tell us about this summer's extreme heat and whether, because of climate change or other factors, this is what we can expect to go through again and again in the coming years. 
Well, Sally, you're all right. You had uh, mentioned that earlier at the beginning of your program uh, about these uh, record high temperatures. And if you look at the entire month of July, there are several cities in Florida that had not only their warmest July ever, but the warmest month ever. And, you know, it varies from point to point, but some of the areas uh, specifically, Tampa, Plant City, Sarasota, Bradenton, Fort Myers, Punta Gorda, and Lakeland all had their warmest months ever. That's it's hard to get your wrap your mind around. This is something that's unprecedented. But there are um, cyclical patterns to the weather. So our weather here in Florida is largely controlled in the summertime by what we call the Bermuda high pressure area, which basically that kind of dictates whether we get morning showers or afternoon showers. And this year, it's been further south than normal because of that large heat wave dome in the western part of the country. So what that's meant is that we've had winds off of the waters of the Gulf of Mexico. Normally, that would be something cooling, but we've also seen record high water temperatures. Record high. Some of the water temperatures are approaching 100 degrees off the uh, Keys this, uh, this year. So that pattern steers our cooling afternoon showers over to the East Coast. We're all really in some of our area, we're in a drought. So the issue is that th- this is a year-to-year change. That may change next year. The overall global pattern still continues to trend up, but hopefully this won't be the coolest uh, ever. There are s- cycles that, that come back, and hopefully we'll get maybe back to our normal um, afternoon showers at some point. Well, we certainly hope that, uh, you know, because this has been this has been so oppressive, um, and we haven't had those afternoon, regular afternoon Florida showers that we've usually had. You know, it doesn't, it hasn't been cooling off at night like has you know in my 30 40 year experience in florida you know that was always the way it was you would wait until evening and then you'd walk your dog or you'd go out and barbecue and it hasn't been cooling off at night very good point. I was raised here in Tampa. I grew up and I remember, you know, as a kid going out in the summertime after a thunderstorm, I'd like to play in the rain after yeah. in the late afternoon. And the temperature, the average temperature in Tampa back in the 60s and 70s, the low temperature was 74. It's now 77. Every 30 years or every 10 years, rather, the National Weather Service calculates the average temperature. So it's been on a sliding scale. And so to, to your point, St. Petersburg had a low in July of, of, of 80, or I'm not sure the exact date, the last 30 days of 86 degrees for wow. a low temperature. Low temperature. That is the highest that has ever uh, been recorded in St. Petersburg for a low temperature. So that is the other point that raises the average because if the overnight lows are higher, then that means the overall average for the day is higher. You add the high, the low, you divide by two. Right. That, that means that that the whole day is is uh, yeah. is a higher average, it, it, and that's what we're dealing with uh, as people go to work, as uh, the kids start back to school. Um, so I want to bring Tom Bernard into the discussion here now. I know you're not a medical doctor, but you've been studying heat stress for a long time. Uh, so tell us, what do we mean by heat stress, and how has this extreme heat affected people at work? And let's talk about some of the things we can do about it. Oh, lots we can do about it. So we'll we'll spread that out over the uh, hour, okay? okay. But uh, well, what is heat stress exactly? Heat, heat, what does that mean? So heat stress, and and we call it heat stress and heat strain. So heat stress is what 
provides the burden on the body and the strains how the body responds. So heat stress is primarily the level of humidity. So Andy talked about the temperatures, but here in Florida, we're gifted with very high humidities as well. And that stops, uh, helps hinder the body from uh, sweating and evaporating that sweat off the skin. Which, which is what is a, which is what cools us, right? Absolutely. So we need that. Yeah. And then just behind that is the fact that you have a higher cardiovascular demand because you have to pump more and more blood out to the skin to get that heat away. So something your readers or listeners may not fully appreciate, heat stress really is a problem of getting rid of heat internally generated by the body and pushing it out to the environment. Okay, and now as, you know, let's talk about the fact that, uh, you know, Florida, as hot as it is in Florida, there is no law that requires landlords to provide working air conditioning. I mean, that's one, you know, fundamental thing that it seems like, you know, would be easy to fix, Uh you know, but we don't have we don't have that law. There's no law that requires workers who work outside or in places that are not air conditioned to be given rest breaks or water breaks in this kind of heat. And there's no law that requires companies to to release workers or schools to release uh, students when the temperature or the heat index reaches a certain you know a certain number. Uh, you know, on midpoint here on this show, we talk a lot about legislation uh, from uh, the state legislature in Florida, and it seems like this year, if never before, would be a good time in the upcoming session to talk about, you know, the possibility of promoting laws like that that would help us deal with heat stress. What do you think about that, Tom Bernard? Oh, I think it's uh, really important. So let me divide that, if if you will, into two parts. So the air conditioning in general, so for the public, and not having air conditioner is really going to put the very young and the very old at risk. So when we talk about heat stroke in the population, that's the group of people we worry about. And it really is days in a row of unrelenting heat without air conditioning to combat that. They're, they're really going to be at risk. Then workers, we all assume when we set uh, practice guidelines is we assume that they're recovered from the heat stress the day before. But if they're not resting in, a, in, a, in an air-conditioned environment, we know that there's a cumulative effect. So their risk the next day is higher and the next day after that because of that incomplete recovery. So, um, you know, uh, Andy, I wonder if there is a sort of a universal scale of, of heat, uh, uh, you know, that uh, meteorologists have, have kind of coalesced around, a- a- above which people shouldn't be like outside or people shouldn't be in in uh, areas where they are not given some cooling relief, air conditioning or, or pools or something. What, what about that? Well, there are some scales uh, that are utilized. Uh, some have take into account more information than others. There's something that most people know called the heat index or yes. the feels like, with air quotes, um, you know, temperature. And 
that um, it takes into account temperature and also uh, humidity uh, related to the, the dew point temperature, as, as Dr. Bernard was, was talking about, the importance of the, the dew point temperature. Um, the, um, there's another index, which uh, Dr. Bernard is more familiar with, uh, called the uh, wet bulb globe temperature. That takes into account not only the temperature and humidity, but also direct sunlight, uh, wind, other factors. So um, that's something that's important. That's a more comprehensive scale then. Yes, it's more comprehensive. Um, It's not, most people, I I don't know, and the general public may not know about it. It is used uh, for people professionally, like in professional practice and sports and things like that. But the, the important thing is to communicate effectively and simply what what is going on? Uh, we were talking about this before the before the show about the importance of dew point temperature. That's a, a very easily obtainable number, and when that gets above seventy five, the comfort level starts to go down. It gets up, you know, seventy nine, eighty. It's it's pretty unbearable. So that's kind of a number that you can hang your hat on as something uh, to, to to look at, as well as the heat index. But the important thing is communication. So the National Weather Service issues heat advisories or excessive heat warnings, and they specifically put out what the heat index is supposed to be that day or the following day. That information is disseminated through the media, uh, on cell phones and other type of information. So it's kind of a public-private partnership, but you have to be aware, you have to be you know, uh, ready to receive that information. I get notices on my phone every morning when there's a heat warning. I've signed up with the National Weather Service to get those warnings. And anybody can sign up for that? Yes. Yes. So, uh, you know, we, Andy, before the show, we've talked about the fact that there's been a suggestion recently in maybe the weather community or maybe just the, the, you know, public health community that we're not doing enough to alert the public about these incidents of extreme heat so that people can better prepare for them. And one of the suggestions uh, that I've seen is that we need uh, some sort of a naming convention uh, for these heat waves like we have for hurricanes, you know, Hurricane Ian, Hurricane Andrew. Um, do we need a naming convention for these heat waves uh, so that people pay better attention and that maybe there needs to be a severity scale like we have for hurricanes? Like in people in Florida, for example, everybody knows the difference between a Category 1 hurricane and a Category 5 hurricane. That's something that when they when they watch the, nether, the weather on the news or on the Internet and they see what's coming, you know, they know how to prepare for, for that. Um, and I'm wondering if whether we should be considering doing those kinds of naming conventions and severity scaling for heat waves too and whether that would help the public you know better prepare and and dr bernard you can feel free to weigh in on this too what do you think guys well i think it's important to communicate and the importance is to communicate the amount of risk so when we talk about afternoon rain chances 20 percent that's not going to necessarily impact your life or your You'll health. You'll still drive to Publix on Dale Bavery right, right. if it's 20%, right? right? But if it's a 20% <laughs> chance of a hurricane hitting yeah. you, that's a different thing. It's a low risk of a high 
you know, danger. A, a danger. Yeah. And the same thing with, with heat, too. So I, I think we have to be careful how we approach that. I'm certainly open to other issues. But if, say, like we named a heat wave, like there's a heat wave going on in Texas right now. There's also a tropical storm that hit there yesterday, Harold. I think it could lead to some confusion <laughs> if you had... Uh, heat wave heat mod wave, and yeah, tropical storm right. Harold all at the and, same time. And the thing is that, you know, the storms are, are point... Uh, specific. So they're moving along, whereas a heat wave is a large uh, area that may not be regionally defined in a very specific way. So I'm, I don't think that would help communicate. I, I'm all for finding out better ways of communicating risk to people. Uh, as I said, there are different gradations of uh, information with the, from the National Weather Service, a heat advisory as opposed to an excessive heat warning. An excessive heat warning is a higher risk. We just need to effectively communicate what that means. And maybe uh, Dr. Bernard could... Uh, yeah. Yeah, what, why don't you that. weigh in on that, Dr. Bernard? Yeah, so, you know, I, 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 I look at the risk, so that combination of severity and probability, that, that you know, the hurricanes certainly get your attention. Uh, I think the problem with heat and heat waves is it's such a fundamental part of our life that, that you know, we, we kind of get a sense that we survive it, and, and in Florida we're good at it, which, it, by the way, is not true. Uh. We're not good at it. No, I'm sorry. I, I meant that in a different way. Um, we're no physio. Our bodies deal with heat stress just like the northerners. So we're not better at it. We might live in Florida because we tolerate it a little bit more. You know, we could self-select some, but we're not better at physiologically we're the same as people who live in North Dakota <laughs> dealing with the heat absolutely okay and uh, but you know it's such a common part of our life it's hard to grab attention well let me point out to you that uh, you know one of the things that I've been reading a lot about uh, this year is that you know we're having a heat wave here in Florida they're having a heat wave in Europe also in Florida pretty much everywhere you go now any kind of commercial place or or anywhere you're spending any time is going to be air conditioned that's not the, the that's not the way it is in Europe you're going to be broiling when you're touring the you know uh, you know the pyramids, the <laughs> sites of of Paris or Venice or something. Uh, you're going to be, you know, you're not going to be in air conditioning. You're going to be really, really hot. In fact, so much so, my son was traveling in Greece this summer and got to Athens, and they closed uh, the, you know, the Parthenon. They closed uh, the Acropolis because it was just too hot for tourists to go up there when he was there. Which, you know, so that makes a big difference too. Is whether or not the environment the built environment is able to handle the heat right yeah so the the europeans had that very serious heat wave around 2000 i can't remember the exact date that really caught them unprepared and that's because they were used to cooler weather and they air conditioning wasn't common in homes and things uh they're i think they're rethinking that yeah, I mean, buildings were built to try to take advantage of breezes and, you know, same thing in, in places like New Orleans with shotgun houses where, you know, you could open a front and it would there would be a straight shot through to the back door and you'd get a cross breeze. But, you know, it seems like those kinds of architectural accommodations aren't good enough anymore, given how 
you know, the temperatures have been rising, right? And our lifestyles are, are, you know, different. I mean, as we, you know, become very industrialized. I mean, even today, though, there are parts of Italy or Spain, they take a a break in the afternoon, a siesta. You know, a lot of the stores are closed between 12 and 2 during the heat of the day and allowing people to escape, you know, from working in the heat. Great point. Great point that we don't have the lifestyle that allows us to accommodate these kinds of heat events, right? That's something else, Dr. Bernard, that maybe, you know, uh, businesses where their workers are working in non-air-conditioned settings, you know, maybe they need to adjust the work day so that, you know, you start earlier in the morning, you end at, I don't know, maybe 10, 30, 11, you take that long midday break, your siesta, and and then you start again at, what, 4.30 or something like that, and, you know... Those are the kinds of accommodations we may need to consider, right? Yeah. So in the, in the Middle East, uh, their work laws for heat have long afternoon breaks, so that they, they aren't they, you know by law, by local law not allowed to work. And I forget the numbers, but it's a three to four hour period of time in the middle of the day. I'm not sure we're going to get that way in the United States anytime soon. Yeah. But there are. Uh, uh, workforces where as you get into the afternoon they'll stop work and send people home uh, because they they know that productivity just drops and uh, and and, I know and it becomes what, potentially dangerous well and that's exactly right so this is a, a form of worker protection yeah uh, let me take a call from John from Sefner who's been very patient John you're on the line well, thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for all the work you do. You're welcome. Okay, talking to the phone, John. You're muted. You with us? Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Um, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk a little bit about your comment about the law and legality. Um, I'm a over 40-year IBEW union member. Yes. And when it comes to legislating worker provisions, we all live in the real world. And uh, in this country, it's very difficult in the current political climate, almost impossible, at least on the state level. And what I would suggest is um, people look at possibly organizing. I've been the benefit of working under collecting and bargaining agreements for most of my life. And there's often safety clauses that restrict um, certain work situations in, 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 in climate hot situations and cold too, most heat in Florida. But I'm a 40-year I'm a member of IBW Local 108. The phone number is 621-2418. The business manager is Chris Parcells. And one of the things that unions that people don't realize, people always think mainly of wages and benefits. But the IBW was actually created in 1891 because 50% of the linemen in the trade as a new industry were being killed. One out of every two linemen did not go home from work at some point in time in their career. So safety is a big part um, as we get hotter and the heat is uh, uh, more oppressive. Um, it's more of a big deal and unionizing is... Um, is one way one way to bring change uh, to uh, the workforce. Hey, John, that is a great point. I am so glad that you called in to make that um, that point. Um, that 
when people come together and they collective bargain, they can maybe get a lot further um, in protecting uh, the workforce. So thank you so much, John. Thanks for that call. I appreciate it. Well, well, thank you, and thanks for all the great information y'all folks share with uh, the public. All right. Thanks. Okay, and I have Chris from Clearwater who's on the line. Chris, you with us? Yes, I am. Um, Yeah, when it comes to landlord-tenant relations, uh, tenants can ask for a provision to be added to the lease that the landlord has to do something. You know, any kind of right or responsibility that's in the Florida statutes that you're uh, mentioning that, uh, you know, the absence of a, a requirement for air conditioning union, um, that uh, that could be added. Uh, any right or responsibility can be waived or, or added to a lease. So uh, the more people who do it, I suppose, the more accommodating landlords would be. Okay, well, that's yeah. a good that's good advice, too. Of course, yeah. a landlord doesn't have to agree to that. That's, no. that's you know, under the law, they don't have to. But, yes, it's probably good to to be competitive um, in the marketplace to be able to say we offer, you know, we guarantee working air conditioning. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I wanted to uh, mention what the EPA website says about greenhouse gases that I think points, uh, well, it definitely points to the fact that we're neglecting the others. Uh, other than CO2, but the most important one and the most impactful, according to their data, is are the fluorinated gases. Even though they're only three percent, they are, are their global warming potential. The EPA says is in the thousands to tens of thousands, and CO2's global warming potential is only one. So when you do the math, it's uh, you know CO2 is 26 times 26.3 times greater. In quantity, but the impact and the percent is uh, much greater with fluorinated gases, which are the only greenhouse gas that's man-made, and it's the most persistent, and it's the only one that is deadly and toxic. Comes from uh, phosphate mining and uh, refrigerant makers, though uh, we don't have regulations from the EPA or Florida Department of Education, Florida Department of uh, Environmental Protection, who uh, enforce. anything. They don't monitor or enforce regulations on their emissions into the water or the air. Uh, so that's uh, that's a great uh, point. I think that needs to be made that, that we're so concerned. Maybe it's the uh, industry that is driving to be uh, overzealous concern for CO2. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for calling in and thanks for all that great information. Um, you know, one of the other issues, uh, Chris was mentioning CO2, and I realized that wasn't his main point, but um, but recently the Tampa Bay Times did a story on the shrinking tree canopy in Tampa and about how that affects the weather in different parts of the city. You know, we all know that shade brings down the temperature and that trees exude moisture into the air, which also helps cool things down. And research has shown that there's a big heat differential between shade neighborhoods and those without a significant tree canopy, which are, unsurprisingly, mostly low-income neighborhoods and minority-majority neighborhoods. And so we can see that, you know, the weather and our responses to it also raise questions of equity. Um, you know, uh, if our low-income neighborhoods are, are, you know, so much hotter than our wealthier neighborhoods, that's something we need to address. And I know that the city of Tampa has this big, you know, tree planting uh, initiative uh, that the mayor has uh, declared recently. Um, 
Let me turn to you, Andy. When we report the weather or forecast the weather, do you think we do enough to recognize the weather differences in in neighborhoods? I mean, you were a local weatherman for years and years and years on TV. You were probably the the point person that most people turned to when they wanted to know what was happening in their in their with their weather but um you know the tv stations cover a large geographic area and i wonder if uh you know we're doing enough to recognize the weather differences in in different neighborhoods like right now i mostly hear about the weather at the airport but nobody lives at the airport what do you think about that well, that is important, and especially uh, as television changed during my career, uh, the focus towards uh, the end when I was on the air was hyper-local. So there was a big push to make sure that we included temperatures, rainfall information in very specific localized areas, and people want to hear their name or their location mentioned if, if it's uh, affected by something. Uh, so I think that's very important. The thing is there has to be some standard um, measuring uh, equipment and standards as to where they're measured and people to maintain them, security. That's why they're located usually at airport locations or some secure location. So I, I, that's a good point. There are many different factors, as you said, uh, the tree canopy, which Tampa actually is has a, a large tree canopy compared to many uh, cities, but um, there are areas like, for instance, there's a there's a, a sensor at the Peter O'Neill Airport, um, which is right near the water, and I've noticed the, the the dew point temperatures have been very high there, higher than at Tampa International or McDill recently. Their heat indices have been over 120. So even though that's a more wealthy neighborhood there they have heat uh problems for another reason for the increased uh, moisture content in the air from because the of the bay. water right so there mm-hmm. there it's not just one thing but you right. are correct that in in areas that don't have as much tree coverage there, there could be a discrepancy in the temperature but there are other factors involved too yeah uh tom bernard what do you think about that uh, you know the the business of um adding trees to neighborhoods provides, um, you know, not just, you know, protection for people who work in the neighborhood, but but for the neighbors, you want to walk your dog. I mean, your kids playing outside. You mentioned earlier that children were, you know, was a was an age group that we really have to worry about. I noticed that kids don't play outside in the summer in Florida anymore. Right? <laughs> well, they, they, uh I won't address whether they play more or less well, outside, but, but you know, both the aesthetics as well as the functional advantages of having a tree neighborhood are important. And, uh, and when we talk about, you know, to bring it back into the heat wave, uh, having uh, neighborhood cooling stations for those people who uh, might not have air conditioning in their home is a way that communities are now trying to deal with these high heat levels that we're having. Yeah, let's talk about these cooling centers because, uh, again, the Tampa Bay Times did a story about the cooling centers that the city of Tampa opened for people who didn't have air conditioning uh, and primarily for the houseless community of people who are living out on the street. Um, But according to the Tampa Bay Times, they found that the shelters were really underutilized. And I think, in fact, they've they've closed them now because no one was going there. People weren't using them. Um, and when the Times went out into the streets to find out why that was so, they found that people could not get to them, 
without adequate, frequent, reliable public transportation, something that we know is sorely lacking in Tampa. So, you know, everything is connected. The head bone's connected to the neck bone. But, you know, these the, the idea of cooling centers is good, but, but the reality of cooling centers is not proved to be effective. What about that? Yeah, and I can both believe that, and in being an academic, there's an opportunity to see if we can find a way of, of, of bringing the people who need them to the places where they are, or place or have more cooling stations where people need them. Well, you know, there are other things we could do, though. I mean, it doesn't take much for the city of Tampa to open the lobby of the, you know, uh, city hall or for the county to open the lobby of the county center and invite people to come in and sit in the air conditioning. It really doesn't take much. What it, what, what we really might need is, you know, for effective uh programs to be able to house people in places where they're comfortable in places with adequate air conditioning i mean that's a different way of of handling it It, i i i just wasn't so impressed with the notion of opening these cooling centers that are not accessible to people who really need them i mean do you have any anything to Uh, add no further thoughts uh, (laughs) i think i think you really kind of described the problem well well Okay, so when we talk about when we talk about people who are living on the street, for example, I mean that, those are people who are in serious danger of heat stress, isn't that right? It is, and uh, for not only the unrelenting heat, but also making sure that they have enough water, and uh, and they probably are also more at risk for uh, heat stroke, or uh, which is what we really worry about. Yeah. Yeah, that's when the body really breaks down and, and you know, you can die. From you you can. Right? So, so if I can use that as an opening. Sure, of course. You know, I think it's worthwhile, much like we've talked about uh, CPR and stroke reduction, is recognizing when somebody is starting to enter into a heat stroke and what they can do to... to uh, uh, treat them immediately, the first aid and, and call emergency services. So this is when the brain has stopped functioning. And so when you think about that, if you have people that are uh, talking a kind of gibberish or um, are, are very disoriented, and certainly if they're unconscious or in convulsions, I think it's safe to assume that they're probably suffering a heat stroke. And what's critically important is to cool them down as quickly and aggressively as possible. So if we were in a work situation, I say you want to, and they do this in the sports arena and the, the military, is get them into an ice bath. But, you know, whatever you have to cool them down locally as you're calling EMS and, and telling them you've got a potential heat stroke, so they come prepared to deal with it. But we know you have to get that immediate cooling. You can't wait until they get to the hospital. Okay, so that's you, good so advice. So if you have a relative, uh, or in one c- case I worked on, where uh, a delivery person suffered a heat stroke in the front yard, and he immediately ran and got his hose and started to hose him down. And I, and I thought that was just great presence of mind mm-hmm. until emergency services could come. So what are the signs that people should look for in in people around them if they have some suspicion that the person is suffering from, you know, severe heat stress to the point that it might even be heat stroke? What should they look for? They So they should look for um, 
aggression. We, and, and by the way, we just get more aggressive when we're hot. So yeah, yeah. you know. But what becomes extraordinary, okay, in terms of speech, uh, wh- whether they starting to use more swear words than they ordinarily would, or <laughs> I know the heat makes me the, do that. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so, so we, on that one, we have to. Be I'm not little, sure that's a good measurement yeah, for me. That's not a differentiating <laughs> characteristic. But if they start not to know where they are or or, or what the you know who the president is, then I at that point you've got to let just assume. That, you know, that's on a hot place, they've been exposed to heat, that they're having a heat stroke and cool them down. Well, what do they look like? Is their face like extra red? Are they having trouble breathing? Are they, you know? Uh, yeah, so I, I stay away from the wet or dry face and whether they're red. Those, uh, aren't, those are not reliable ways of okay. doing it. You really look to, is their brain functioning right? Okay. Okay, and if it, if it just looks like... Are they discombobulated yeah. and confused and, and uh, you know, so maybe it looks like they're having a stroke, maybe, you know? <laughs> and, it, and that might be part of it, except it won't be the stroke characteristics. Yeah, like, you know, with the smile and the you know, potential, uh, you know, left arm problem from a heart attack or that kind of thing. Okay, well, you know, I have an email here from Dave in North Tampa. He wanted to comment on the issue with the city's cooling centers and noticed also that they were barely attended. And he's wondering if the city should be more proactive about water stations, too, and and is concerned about the elders at un- uh, shaded bus stops. Uh, that's something that I notice as I drive around, uh, you know, Tampa and Hillsborough County is that the, the bus stops have, uh, they're just sitting out there in the unrelenting sun at the side of the road, which also, you know, they're exposed to particulates from the traffic and, um, and this unrelenting sun. I mean, that's another issue that we have that we're not, you know, protecting our community from. Yeah, we want them, it'd be nice to have them shaded. At least shaded, yeah. if, if not air conditioned, <laughs> but at least shaded, right? At least shaded. And then the availability of water is, is another one of those crucial things because of the need to maintain hydration. Okay. We don't have water stations around Tampa, do we? And again, even for our houseless population, if they want water, they're generally needing to buy, you know, single-use plastic bottles of water, right? Right. Yeah, that's bad. That's bad. All right. Well, uh, I I have an email here from, uh, or a text from uh, 8444 who says, uh, the Arbor Day Foundation. In one year, a mature tree will inf- will absorb more than 48 pounds of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and release oxygen in exchange. Um, and this is from Rich. Uh, and uh, and so you know, again, tree planting. That that is seems to be something that uh, people are very much supportive of in in the and, Tampa and Bay. Are, yeah, and there, you know, other places have have 
pushed this and tried this too. I, I was in uh, Jerusalem earlier this year, and they've had—I uh, don't know all the details about it—but for many years they've had a big push to plant trees over that whole area around there. You know, I thought of—I thought of, I never had been there before. I thought it was kind of a desert area, but there was it was very heavily uh, wooded, and it was because of the efforts of the people over decades of, of having a tree planting program. And so, you know, architecture too can contribute to this uh, problem. You know, we uh, could have more roof gardens, for example, in new construction, you know, that would provide even more space for vegetation and trees, right? Yeah, and I think there's kind of a conundrum because we're, we're talking about trying to help people to combat the heat with air conditioning, but that also contributes to uh, global warming, global right? Warming. Because so of the energy. It's a little bit of a conundrum yeah. uh, where, where you be the balance of something like you're talking about, uh, you know, architecturally or like my uh, grandmother used to, she grew up here. She lived in uh, Seminole Heights and she had an attic fan back. She Her house was built in 1919 and they drew the air through the house. She didn't have air conditioning and right. in, the, in the 1910s. It was, you know, it's just a modern phenomenon. So there are other ways that people combat the heat in, you know, in other parts of the world, and we used to do that here in Florida. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, architects, uh, pay attention uh, to the heat, too. Um, I have I have an email here or a text from 3860 from Natalie and Brandon who says, My kid loves the outdoors. Unfortunately, this summer he rarely went outside before 7 p.m. because the heat was too much. Camps should think twice about outdoor all-day camps. A couple of years ago, my child suffered extreme mental confusion that landed him in the hospital for several days. That's what you were talking about, Tom, right? Dehydration from a week of skateboarding summer camp was the presumed culprit. This is not the same heat that I grew up with as a child in the 70s and 80s in Tampa. And and we know that, Andy, don't we? That it's not the same heat that... Right that people experienced in Tampa in the 70s and 80s. Well, you know, Dr. Bernard was was referencing the uh, the cumulative effects uh, on the body of that. And like I said, you know, we used to have these, uh, you know, cooling periods. And I was, I was looking up some of the record lows for the last couple of days. They're in the 60s in Tampa, 60s, 68, 67. Wow. But they all happened, you look at the date, it's like 1911, 1895. You don't see, we don't have temperatures in the 60s at night. Part of that is the urban heat island effect. But it's, the, I think, the, the, the cumulative effect of the heat. You don't get a break. You, you continue into the heat and it, it can, Lord it, you don't knows, get a break at night. you don't night. get a break. Yeah. Uh, Bubba writes in that I feel horrible for the prisoners in Florida uh. State uh, corrections facilities it's inhumane to leave them suffering in the heat. Uh, that is an issue that has received some play in the media, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have this huge shortage of uh, correctional officers, and uh, one of the main reasons is who wants to work in that heat? Now, the prisoners have to be there. Correctional officers do not. That's a, that's a job choice, a work choice. And who wants to work in those conditions? Um, not to mention that, you know, leaving Florida prisoners in facilities without air conditioning is inhumane. It's, you know, a violation of the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment, right? It is. You've got them at the at the border of their ability to dissipate that heat and, and maintain a good steady body temperature. And remember that, the, you know, moods are changing. So the aggression, so you're, you, you've got to 
uh, not an expert in prison populations, but you know, the but the last thing I thought is you want a more aggressive group of of prisoners. Guards are going to be more on edge. It's going to become a, a difficult situation. It's going to become worse under these conditions. Yeah, it's a safety issue. It's a safety issue because if people um, – and it's also uh, not necessarily something that they can control. I mean, if one of the uh, physiological effects of this overwhelming heat and the inability to get away from it is to develop a, a more aggressive response to it in terms of you know, behavior – you're you're gonna have problems. You're gonna have you know, fights. You're gonna have. It's dangerous, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's another thing that the Florida legislature may need to address in its upcoming session is, you know, they've got to do something about air conditioning Florida prisons. Um, I think that that's uh, you know that's something that they this summer has told them. I think that they need to do if they want. If they want people to survive, if they want them to be safe, if they want to be able to hire corrections officers there. Um, although, you know, I wonder if DeSantis's state guard will be, uh, you know, sent in to substitute uh, for the corrections officers that they don't have. Um, but, you know, schools didn't have – I, I went to school here at Gorey Elementary. I went, also went to St. John's for a while. They had air conditioning there. But Gorey didn't have air conditioning when I was there in the How 60s. ironic is that? John Gorey's name, <laughs> St. School, it didn't – It is, and his didn't. statue is in the Capitol <laughs> building representing Florida, I believe. <laughs> John Gorey, who was instrumental in the development of air conditioning, his school – They have it no, now. I don't want to yes. disparage that. This was a long time ago, 1963, 64. But how ironic is that? How funny is that, that that school did not have access to air conditioning? Yeah, they have it now. Um, but, you know, I noticed one of the things I, when I moved, first moved to Florida from up north, one of the things I noticed was so many of the schools have like these outdoor breezeways where kids walk from classroom to classroom outdoors. My son went to Robinson High School, for example, and that's one of the places where I noticed that, you know, uh, there's a lot more time spent outdoors in uh, for Florida students than there is, you know, up north. And so, uh, you know, that's something that uh, these schools were built in the years that you're talking about where the heat was not so difficult and so relentless. Um, you're listening to WMNF in Tampa, and we're talking to our weather expert, meteorologist Andy Johnson, and a public health expert, Tom Bernard, um, who uh, is talking about heat stress from the USF College of Public Health. And if you have questions or comments for our experts, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can email me at dj at wmnf.org, or you can text 833-433-0885. Of course, we're interested in hearing from you about your experiences with the heat uh, this summer. Are you feeling any particular effects of this summer's heat wave that you want to share with our experts so we'd like to hear from you before we have to close out our uh, our call lines give us a call at 813-239-9663 okay you know one of the other uh, news stories that i saw relevant to our topic today was that yesterday 
President Biden talked to his national security advisor about the peak hurricane season that's approaching. And he connected the extreme heat and the rising ocean temperatures to climate change and climate change to the increasing risk of hurricanes and how these issues are all in some way national security concerns and national security risks for the United States. And not only does it implicate the allocation of government resources to respond to heat and weather disasters like hurricanes and floods, but also something as simple as how relief workers and even our military can perform when working in extreme heat. So, uh, Tom Bernard, I'd like to ask you, do we know what the government is doing to address that, like with regard to the military and relief workers? So I can speak to the military, and they have a, a, a very good understanding of, of heat stress and how to uh, protect the uh, armed forces. These are hard-learned lessons from World War II and, and uh, up through the, uh, the uh, Gulf Wars. So they, they uh, are, are good at maintaining a, a uh, a readiness, but still, there's a, a price you pay uh, for all of that. The, um, the resilience of the emergency response workers, I know a little bit less about, um, but uh, it, it, the uh, you know, if it's a response that falls in under the guise of the the Coast Guard, uh, they too have a good understanding of of heat stress levels. So. We saw, for instance, in the Gulf cleanup uh, from Deepwater Horizon, where the Coast Guard took charge of that effort, that, that, that they quickly recognized heat stress as being a problem and implemented practices to uh, mitigate the effects. Okay. I've got a, I, I've got, I'm going to take one more call from Jeff in Spring Hill. You've got to be really brief, Jeff. Yeah, I'll be real brief. I just wonder why I... They have a surplus, I heard, and, and quite a bit of money in the surplus in the coffers of Tallahassee. It's bad enough that they don't air condition the prisons, and that might be as a deterrent. But the, the schools is my main concern. See how you possibly uh, teach kids in this state. And they, they have money for it. They need to take care of it if they have a surplus. I would think that would be the top one of the top priorities. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, You know, one of the things that has come up recently is that Governor DeSantis rejected federal funding for uh, energy improvements uh, that would potentially have helped Floridians bring down their cost of their energy uh, and utility service and and made, you know, uh, opportunities for less, potentially less use of energy and less climate change that would have helped us with the the heat issue. so uh, anything else I want uh, that either of you want to say before we have to get off the air? Well, you know, even in, addition, in addition to air conditioning, just things like fans. I, you know, been sitting outside at my house and I, they have much more efficient fans. They used to have the really big yeah. blades. The, they look really skinny, but they, they move more air. They're, they're more efficient, uh, things like that. And I don't know, maybe Dr. Okay. can comment on how that affects the human body. Maybe. Yeah. yeah so. Quickly, though, <laughs> I, I've got to, I'm sorry, I've got to cut you off because NPR News will come in in a second. But that, so that's it for us today. And I want to thank 
thank you so much for lending us your ears for this hour. We'll be back next week with more news and public affairs. And if you have a topic that you think we should cover, send me a note at midpoint at w, uh, midpoint at gmail.com. And meanwhile, I want to thank my guests, meteorologist Andy Johnson and Tom Bernard from the USF School of Public Health for being with us in the hot seat. See what I did there? <laughs> to talk about this darn heat. And thank you to volunteers Jessica Green and Barbara Fling and all of you who support WMNF. Now, please stay tuned for Talking Animals with Duncan Strauss, WMNF Tampa.